MacCast, Sunday, July 17th, 2022. This episode of the MacCast is brought to you by ZocDoc. More on them later in the show. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How are you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another episode of Mac Hints, Tips, News, Rumors, all the goings-ons in the Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you are having a wonderful day. Uh, wherever you might be, whatever time it might be, I hope you're having a a good time. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, things have been going pretty well here in MacCast land. The studio is quite nice, a little bit warm, but uh, we're getting through. There's a little bit of humidity too. I'm getting used to that being here in the Midwest. That's a little bit of a change, and uh, you know, I know the big change is coming in the winter. We have to get used to that, but we're getting prepared. We're going to be all right. Uh, looking over the Mac and Apple news, we have some great things to get into in this episode. We're going to talk about Apple's headset and not just the current headset, but maybe what's happening with the next one down the road. I know it might be a little bit premature, but we'll get in and we'll talk to, talk about that a little bit. I'm going to talk about Mac shipments and how Apple is doing there. We've got some details on Apple Car and what's happening with that project. I actually don't think we've talked about that in a little bit, which is surprising because that always seems to come up. Uh, what's maybe next for iPads? We've got some Apple TV Plus news that will round out the news for this week. And then we're going to get into some feedback. Wow, did I get a lot of feedback on the whole Drobo backup storage conversation that we started in the last episode. We got a lot of feedback to get into there from all of you in the community. And then... We have a question about Launchpad. Yeah, do you know what Launchpad is? We're going to get into that. We'll we'll explain things. Uh, talk about some AirPods stuff. And then a question about music libraries. And that will round out this episode of the MacCast. So it should be a good one. I say we just get right into things. Starting off with some news around Apple's AR VR headset. And not the one that we haven't seen yet. It's actually the next one. This is according to Ming-Chi Kuo. He says that in the first half of 2015, Apple may have both high-end and more affordable models of their, their AR VR headset with the more affordable ones targeted at consumers. He also believes that by 2025, 2026, shipments of Apple's currently non-existent headsets could reach up to 10 million units. So not too shabby. Of course, as I mentioned, Apple hasn't even announced or shipped a headset yet, but many think that we could see the first offering from Apple by as early as this fall. Mm, that might be hedging things a little bit. Most of the rumors are actually pointing toward 2023, which I think is more likely. So sometime in 2023, I'm guessing later in 2023, if it happens at all. The first version is expected to use a combination of augmented reality and virtual reality, and will likely come with a pretty high price tag. Most of the estimates are targeting a about US $3,000 price point. Um, I think that seems high, but probably for this first gen pro product is really going to be right where it lands. I'm guessing functionality is going to be a little bit, uh, be a little bit limited. Really, it's going to be targeted at early adopters, at developers, and uh, Apple's going to kind of push and see what people want to do with it. And I think that'll drive sort of the next generation of the product. And we've seen Apple do this before with a lot of their stuff. You know, the iPhone kind of had a limited feature set, but it was a huge technological advancement. I think that's what Apple's looking for here. And it'll be really interesting to see what they released. Now for the first model, the site, the elect says that Apple may be looking to diversify their display providers. They have a report this week claiming that Apple has asked Samsung, Samsung display to develop micro OLED panels for the upcoming headset. Now, early reports claimed that the headset would feature two high-resolution, I think I had read 8K, but this week I was seeing reports of 4K, but either 4K or 8K micro OLED displays with a resolution of 3,000 pixels per inch. And most reports were saying those were going to be provided by Sony. Now we have possibly Samsung in the mix, though it does sound like Samsung 
might be providing a third OLED panel that would not be the main display. Some of the reports are saying these would be displays for the edges, kind of the peripheral vision, lower resolution, not the really high-res ones that the Sony ones would be. We'd also heard that report that there might be a LED panel on the outside that would kind of project your eyes in kind of this really creepy way, but or what I think would be creepy way, but it's basically so people can see your facial expressions. They could see what you look like. So there'd be cameras pointed at your eyes and then it would project that outward. So almost like you were not wearing goggles at all. Uh, I think it's just going to look bizarre, but who knows? That could be something. But anyway, a bunch of LED panels going on here. And uh, again, the elect is saying that um, uh, Samsung might be providing some of those additional panels. And the ET News also reported uh, that Apple could likely release the first version of the headset in early 2023. But they also think that Apple is already working on a new version for 2024. I'm assuming... Uh, that would be one that would be coming maybe in 2025, as Ming-Chi Kuo was alluding to, uh, because ET News says that one would have substantial improvements over the first generation model. So, you know, Apple obviously has a lineup ready to go for AR VR headsets. The first one is going to be that kind of... Uh, not prototype, but I've often felt like Apple does public r and I call it public R&D. So I think like a great example of that was the G4 Cube, right? Great machine in terms of technology, but had a lot of issues in terms of cooling and performance and overheating and all that stuff. But I think Apple learned so much by getting that product out into the market letting consumers really push it and seeing where the thermal issues were. And I don't think we would have seen the major advancements we saw with things like the iPads and Apple's laptops and uh, the MacBook Air and all that stuff. I think it's all iterative of those kinds of designs. So I see the ARV or headset, at least the first generation of it, really being that kind of a product for Apple. They're really testing the market. They're seeing where they can push things. They're seeing what developers are going to do once they have the technology available to them and the software tools that Apple is likely to put out with this. And it's going to be, I think, really incredible, kind of amazing. I think AR, uh, AR especially has not really found its consumer niche. And I think if anybody can really do that, I think Apple would be the company to make that happen. Of course, VR, we've had that, and I think we're going to push the boundaries of that as well. So I'm excited to see Apple enter this market. I know I've asked you a few times how you feel about it. So if you have some feedback related to that, shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, matcast at gmail.com. One thing I find very interesting about Apple is analysts. We talk about analysts and predictions and a lot of things here on the MacCast. And what that means is that anything that you hear rumor-wise or analyst-wise, in most cases, is really just speculation. We, we've often talked about the fact that until Apple says something or does something, we really don't know what Apple is going to do. And nowhere, I think, in our community is that more illustrated when uh, then when it comes to sales numbers right apple does not report specific sales numbers on specific products they kind of go by categories and you try to get a rough idea and there's all these analytics firms and and uh you know people who try to put out reports and try and kind of work the math backwards and so depending upon whose numbers you want to believe this week Mac sales either really went really well or slightly well, I guess, or poorly. <laughs> and it all comes down to who do you want to accept? Let's start, I guess, with the bad news. IDC. Their latest numbers for worldwide PC shipments in the second quarter of 2022 show an overall decline for the entire PC industry of 15.3%. I think that's not too surprising given supply chain and all of the things going on with chips and those sorts of things and just the economy and inflation and everything in general, right? Our world, let's be fair, is a little bit uncertain at the moment. But they say that Apple actually fared a little bit worse than that. They estimate that Apple shipped just 4.8 million Macs in the second quarter. And if so, that would represent a 22% decline from the same quarter a year ago. They cite production constraints as contributing to the decline and also that 
Apple has, and they also say, excuse me, that Apple has slipped into the fifth position for overall PC shipments, moving down from fourth place. So that sounds not so great for Apple, right? They're sliding a little bit. They've got a 22% uh, quarterly decline year over year in the second quarter for Mac shipments. But hey, if you don't like that news, don't worry, because we've got numbers from Gartner as well for the exact same period. And they claim that Apple shipped 6.3 million Macs instead of 4.8. So quite a big difference. They say that's up 10% from the 5.8 million they estimated Apple shipped in the same quarter last year. And they say that Apple maintained their position as the fourth best-selling PC manufacturer overall. So, hey, Apple, again, either did well or they didn't do so great, depending upon whom you want to believe. Now, whomever's numbers, whomever's numbers you want to believe, I think that's right. Apple shows no sign of slowing down when it comes to delivering new Macs for consumers to buy. We already have the M2 13-inch MacBook Pro. The, the new M2 MacBook Air just came out, and it's selling incredibly well, according to reports. I think there's no surprise there. The new design is amazing, and it is really great. Uh, we did talk about last time the slight performance degradation if you go with the base level model of the 13-inch MacBook Pro because it has a single SSD. Read-write speeds are not as good as they were with the M1. I also explained in that episode why I think that's not a huge issue for most consumers. So if you want to go back and listen to that and understand why I think that, you can listen to the previous episode of the MacCast. I won't go into that again, but it is worth noting that the uh, base model MacBook Air also starts at 256 gigabytes SSD, and we have seen reports that its performance pretty much pretty much matches the 256 gigabyte version of the 13-inch MacBook Pro. So if absolute performance in an M2 machine matters to you in terms of of especially the read-write speed of the SSD, you're going to want to go with the 512 model or higher. That'll give you uh, two SSD chips and a little bit and, and better performance. It'll more match and be in line with the drive performance of the M1 systems that are out there now. So I'm just going to throw that out there. I wanted to mention that. But Apple does have... A number of new machines coming out with M2s for the future. We have the M-Series Mac Pro looming. Uh, Not really clear if that's going to have some iteration of the M1 or some iteration of the M2, but that's on the horizon at some point. Apple's already stated they're still working on that product. But we are also expecting updates to the 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros. For the latter model, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman says that they're, quote, already in the works and we could see them as early as this fall, though he does note that it could be pushed back to early 2023 as well. So if you're in the market for a new uh, MacBook Pro, just be aware of that. Timing-wise, you might want to wait till the fall, see what happens. And if you really need a new system, you know, jump in on an M1 if they don't release those new ones, because you might be waiting until early spring. It all comes down to kind of your timing on that. But as far as the M2 goes, he expects that overall Apple is going to keep the current design and kind of the port configurations and things like that doesn't expect those things to really change. The update will be mostly internal with M2 Pro and M2 Max processors and focus given to the graphics side of the chips. Doesn't go into performance, but I would probably expect to see performance gains similar to what we saw with the 13-inch MacBook Pro and the M2 MacBook Air, probably in that 10 to 20% increase in terms of performance. So I don't think they're going to be revolutionary. I think they're going to be more evolutionary, but still really nice machines and they are on the horizon. So if you're you're in the market for a pro laptop, uh, just be aware they should be here, you know, in the next six months or so. We have some new information and details this week on Apple's car project coming from the information. Actually, Wayne Ma over there published a detailed report outlining Apple's ongoing car project. He did in that report cite some of the many known technical issues and staffing changes and staffing issues that entire team at Apple has gone through. We've talked about those on previous episodes of the MacCast. He also added some new information on what Apple's engineers might be trying to achieve with the project. And I have to say, it is, if it turns out to be true, if, you know, his predictions or his information turns out to be true, it's ambitious 
to say the least. He says that Apple hopes to gain exemptions from the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to deliver a vehicle that doesn't have a steering wheel or brake pedals. That would be a radical change from some of the other designs and concepts we've seen so far from other manufacturers. Apple even hopes that passengers would be allowed to lay flat and sleep in the car. So they are going for full autonomous vehicle if this report is to be believed. They also say that Apple has explored the idea of having a trunk that would raise up for accessing the trunk and then lower down to kind of tuck away when it wasn't in use and that there could even be screens in the back seat that would raise and lower. This is something that I kind of talked about a little bit. I think really Apple is looking at leveraging their entire entertainment experience in terms of their services like Apple Arcade and Apple TV Plus and Apple Music and really integrating that into their vehicle. I think it's going to be a big part of it, the whole iCloud services. And so if you're not driving, you got to have stuff to do, right? So you're going to want screens all around you. So it doesn't surprise me that you'd have screens rising up and and in all nooks and crannies. And I think really, and a few of you pointed this out after Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference event, right, when they kind of showcased all of the screens that they're targeting for CarPlay. Yeah, that is really, imagine a vehicle where it's not just the dashboard that's like that, but surrounding you, screens kind of everywhere with information and data and all that sort of stuff, entertainment, could be really, really cool. Now, this report also says that Apple's design has a curved roof, kind of like a Volkswagen Beetle, and that the seating arrangement would be four feet, four seats facing inward, so passengers would kind of face each other. So you really, it's about interacting and having a conversation. Uh, my wife asked me, and I really didn't know, I didn't hear in this report, you know, would the seats swivel around so you could face forward? Because she doesn't like riding backwards. So I would imagine you'd be able to kind of reconfigure the seats and move around and that sort of thing. But the report just says four seats facing inward. Uh, so sounds really, really cool. Another concern uh, that Apple has is about the vehicle and kind of the work they're doing, according to this report, is how they are going to conceal the car from the public when they have to get out there and start doing public testing. And I would imagine that's a huge fear for them because think of all the leaks we've had so far. If they actually get a car out on the road, uh, you know, they couldn't even keep the iPhone designs right under wraps. Remember the whole bar incident when a guy just left a prototype at a bar? Yeah. Now imagine trying to hide a whole car. I think there's not much they're going to be able to do to kind of cover this one up. But interesting uh, information in this report Interestingly, uh, the report also talks about Johnny Ives' ongoing investment uh, or involvement, rather, with the project as a consultant uh, with his company Loveform. Uh, I find that interesting, and I say that's interesting because also this week we got reports from the New York Times that Ive and Apple have agreed to stop working together. So they kind of had this ongoing, I think, exclusive contract or semi-exclusive contract exclusive contract where Johnny I was going to continue to consult for Apple on their designs independently through his company. And uh, I think that restricted I from taking on some other project, especially with kind of competitors to Apple or other tech companies that might be involved in similar projects. Sounds like they're going to get away from that and they're going to kind of end that relationship. So I believe he probably was consulting on the car project, but that might be coming to an end given this other report from the New York Times. Moving back to the car, uh, the report finally says, don't expect uh, any kind of car from Apple anytime soon. They say the launch is likely years away. I think we had been hearing dates like 2025. I even think that might be somewhat ambitious, again, given the information in this report. If it is a true autonomous vehicle with no steering wheel, no brake, really a car that's just going to... or really a vehicle. It's a people mover. <laughs> I didn't really think about that. Like Apple is developing a personal people mover when it really comes down to it. And uh, I, I think, you know, that's going to take a lot of regulatory approvals, a lot of testing, a lot of those sorts of things. So I, I think we're yeah, ways off from that. I would imagine 2025, maybe they could make it happen if they work really, really hard, but I could even push it to 2026. 
2027. And that's just my pure speculation, but uh, yeah. And I kind of still feel like the idea behind this would be a vehicle as a service. I know a lot of people don't agree with me on that. They think, uh, you know, it's going to be too messy, not really cleanly. Uh, You know, people might be concerned about other people using the vehicle, but I think they could pull it off if they kind of treat it almost like a cab service where the vehicles return to a central area and they start off in big cities. It just might be a different kind of rollout. And a lot of people would pay to kind of have a second vehicle on demand rather than paying a whole nother car payment for a second vehicle. I think a lot of families have multiple cars and one of those cars, if if you're like me, one of those cars sits in the driveway or sits in the garage for a lot of the time. And that's a big investment to have just sitting idle. And if you could just get a service where you're not paying the insurance, you're not paying, you know, that's all bundled in there, right? It's covered. You're not paying fuel costs. You're not paying maintenance costs. Uh, that could be a good, nice trade-off. But that's just my opinion. You know, I think Apple's going to do car as a service for this vehicle. But I'm the only one I think that's ever said that or is really pushing that idea. So maybe I'm just totally crazy. If you think I am, shoot me some feedback, Matt at gmail.com. We're hearing a little bit more about the next iPad, and reports are saying they are going to be lighter and brighter. Apple's focus on their next iPad is going to be better OLED panels, bringing lighter weight to the devices, according to a new report from the ET Times. They cite prototype displays being made for iPads from Samsung and LG Display. They're supposedly using a new dry etching process that would allow the displays to be lighter, and Apple is looking for, quote-unquote, unrivaled image quality. So really focusing on the display for the next generation of iPads, according to this report. The story also says that the displays could have a new coating to increase the display's durability, which is going to be needed because they are going to be incredibly incredibly thin to achieve that additional lightness. And display analyst Ross Young went on the Mac Rumors show this week and said that Apple would move to OLED displays for the 11-inch and 12-inch iPad Pros, likely in 2024. So sounding like they're a few years off, or about a year and a half off, according to Ross Young. And he tends to be pretty accurate, so I have no reason not to believe that that report. But Apple working on those OLED panels. We've been hearing about OLED coming to iPads for a while now. It's sounding like the Pro models was, it would be where they would start, and that, in my mind, makes a lot of sense. Ross Young also says he believes that Apple could bring an under-display true-depth camera system to the iPad before the iPhone, and he says that they're going to do it there because it's a little bit easier to do that in a display with a lower uh, pixel-per-inch resolution. So you kind of have those, I would imagine, more gaps between the pixels to kind of get that camera equipment under there and functioning properly. So that kind of tracks with uh, making sense to me. So... Some new iPad stuff, but we might be a few years off before that. There's probably one more generation of kind of more of the same, and then probably some sort of radical design change or updates, starting with the Pro models in 2024. And then finally, in the news for this week, we got a bunch of Apple TV Plus news, starting off with Apple getting a ton more award nominations. Apple TV Plus shows got a staggering, in my opinion, 52 nominations for the 2022 Primetime Emmy Awards. That's up from the 34 nominations they got last year. And I think, no surprise, the top two shows were Ted Lasso with 20 nominations and Severance with 14 nominations. Uh, they received also the nominations for Best Outstanding Comedy Series and Outstanding Drama Series, respectively. Several other Apple TV series also received nominations, including Schmigadoon, Foundation, Lissy's Story, Pachinko, The Morning Show, Central Park, C, and a few others. Uh, so Apple, you know, doing really well, as they have been in the awards shows. And that is definitely not slowing them down. There were a number of new series announced this week. There's a new series coming to Apple TV that will focus on 
Ferrari and its founder Enzo Ferrari, according to The Hollywood Reporter. The series is going to come from Peaky Blinders creator Stephen Knight, who incidentally also created the Apple TV series C, and it's going to be directed by Stefano Salima. The series was inspired by the best-selling biography Ferrari Rex by Luca Del Monte and will focus on the uh, focus on a specific 5-year period of Ferrari's life from 1956 to 1961. Along with the TV series, the same piece says that Apple TV Plus will also deliver a feature film about Enzo Ferrari simply titled Ferrari. It will be directed by Michael Mann and star Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Shailene Woodley. Apple also this week announced the hosts of its new eight-part documentary series, Gutsy, which will premiere on the service starting September 9th. It's going to be Hillary Rodham Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. They're going to host the series, which is based on their New York Times bestselling book, The Book of Gutsy Women. So I guess it's not too surprising that they chose the Clintons as they wrote the book on it. Uh, The series will follow the Clintons as they speak with some of their personal heroes, extraordinary, courageous, and resilient women who have made an impact in their community and on the world. The list of gutsy women featured in the series will include Kim Kardashian, Megan Three Stallion, Jane Go- Dr. Jane Goodall, Gloria Steinem, Wanda Sykes, Amy Schumer, Goldie Hawn, Kate Hudson, and more. Turning to the sports side of things, there's more indication that Apple may win the battle for the rights to air the NFL's Sunday ticket games. This week, a site called The Puck News says that Apple may be willing to pay as high as $3 billion to secure the rights. DirecTV has the rights currently and will for the next season, uh, and they reportedly pay about $2 billion a year for each season. So Apple stepping up with another billion, and it sounds like they might actually be able to secure the deal. It's not clear on how much additional Apple might charge for access to the games should they land the deal on Apple TV+. And the same report claims that Apple is continuing to look for other op- other opportunities to add sports offerings to Apple TV+, and say that they're possibly pursuing a deal to get the UEFA Championship League European football games on the service as well. They say that deal could be worth as much as 2 to $2.5 billion. As far as pricing for all that additional content goes, I think it would be great if they took the same strategy that they've done with the MLB and rolled the sports stuff into their service for free. I don't think they're likely to continue doing that. Uh, technically, the MLB Friday night baseball games are not meant to be free forever but since apple brought the games to their service they have been free month after month and there's no exception this month apple and the mlb announced the schedule of games for august and once again the they say that the games will still be available for free exclusively on apple tv plus to apple tv plus subscribers so that's really cool and again if apple can continue to bring can can continue to bring great sports content to Apple TV Plus and not charge an arm and a leg for it, I think that's going to be ultimately good for the service as well as good for consumers. I'm not a huge sports fan, but I can definitely appreciate people who are. And it's it's really nice. It actually makes me happy when I log into Apple TV Plus, especially on Fridays to watch my new shows. And I see all those great baseball games that are being aired because I know a lot of people are really into that. So I think that's really, really cool. And hopefully they can do the same thing with European uh, football and American football. That would be awesome. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank my show sponsor, ZocDoc. You know, if your doctor can recite every line from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off but can't remember your name, yeah, it's probably time to get a new doctor with ZocDoc. ZocDoc makes it easy to find quality doctors in your network and in your neighborhood. Plus, with real verified patient reviews, you can find the right doctor for you one that actually remembers your name. And for me, what I love about ZocDoc is I hate waiting or having to wait to see a doctor. When I'm not feeling well, uh, I want to be seen right away. And so I use ZocDoc and their app to find quality in-network doctors who can see me within days, not weeks. You can see that right inside the app and book an in-person or virtual appointment 
and do it on your schedule. And that is something I absolutely love. It's kind of game changing for me. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. On ZocDoc, you can find every specialist under the sun, whether you're trying to straighten those teeth, fix an achy back, get a mole checked out, or anything else, ZocDoc has you covered. ZocDoc's mobile app is as easy as ordering a ride to a restaurant or getting delivery to your house. Search, find, and book doctors with just a few taps. You can find and review local doctors, read verified patient reviews from real people who made real appointments. So now when you walk into that doctor's office, you're all set to see someone in your network who gets you. Go to ZocDoc.com, find the doctor that's right for you, and book an appointment in person or remotely that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I'm one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to find and book a quality doctor. So go to ZocDoc.com slash MacCast and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many available within 24 hours. That's zocdoc.com slash maccast, zocdoc.com slash maccast, and a big thank you to ZocDoc for their support of the show. Can I just say, wow, we had a ton of amazing feedback for our conversation about Drobo, and it was actually a little bit of bad news because it was covering their recent filing for bankruptcy, but they're also corporate restructuring. They've been struggling for a while, but we brought up that conversation because I'm a huge Drobo fan. I own two of them, and a number of people are now wondering, you know, I have Drobos. What is the future of Drobo? What's going to go on? What should I do? Do I need to change my storage solutions? What kind of storage solutions should I look at? What if I need direct attached storage? What if I need network attached storage? And we kind of started that conversation conversation on the last episode of the MacCast. I shared with you some of my ideas, what I'm thinking about maybe transitioning to or moving to uh, for myself, but I also asked for your feedback, and boy, did you come through. I received a lot of great advice and recommendations from the community, so I thought we'd get into those, we'd share those with you uh, now, and I'm going to start off with a little bit of feedback from Mitch, and here's what Mitch had to say. Hi, Adam. This is Mitch. I'm responding to your request for feedback on different types of backup methods. I have been backing up fanatically since 2008 when I accidentally deleted my hard drive. And so my current system is using Backblaze for the online remote backup. But I also have a hard drive that I keep in my office. And once a week, I will take my laptop in and back it up there. And in addition, I have, of course, Time Machine at home backed up. So I figure with these three backup solutions, I am pretty safe. I use iCloud for uh, most things like files, etc. So that's not technically backup, but rather than doing the whole mess with network-attached storage or the other things like that that you're talking about, this seems a lot easier and less fiddly and has worked for me. Thankfully, I haven't needed to actually use my Backblaze backup at all, but it's good to know that it's there if the worst happens. So anyway, that's my feedback. Thanks for all you do. Take care. Hey, Mitch, thanks for the feedback. Yeah, I am a big fan of Backblaze as well. Anybody who's been listening to the show for a while knows that that is sort of my online backup of choice these days. I also have my Drobos. I've talked about this several times on the MacCast. I use those almost as network-attached storage uh, with a Mac Mini. Actually, I have one direct connected and one on a Mac Mini that I back up to over the network. I also have a Synology that I back up to over the network, and I use... uh, Chronosync to actually sync specific folders and data and things like that across the network to those devices. And that's sort of how I handle my local backup. So I have local copies in the direct attached storage Drobo and then additional copies over the network to the Synology and to another Drobo. And then I have my cloud backup and my time machine. I also have time machine backups that are local. So you guys know I'm kind of crazy. Oh, and a carbon copy cloner backup. So I have like five, six backups of a lot of stuff, specifically critical, critical things like my photos and, and things like that. But I think it's a good important reminder that, you know, regardless of the devices that you're actually backing up to or storing things on, having a multi-tiered backup strategy where you have offsite 
uh, even if you're not using it and don't need it. I, I would say the same thing. There's been a handful of times when I've needed to go to my Backblaze to recover a file or something that I deleted, but it's nice to know that it's there, right? It it, it has a history and uh, there's files there and I have had to recover some things. And I've even just used that as like my, uh, hey, I'm away from my Mac. I know I have that file on my Mac, but I don't have any kind of personal cloud storage set up. I now do, and this was, I guess, before I did documents and data through iCloud, but, you know, iCloud, you know, that's valid too. I, I would say you're right. It's not technically a backup, but it can serve as another copy of your files and documents, right? Uh, so it's a nice little place where you can go grab things from. And I've grabbed things from there. I've grabbed things from my Backblaze. And I, I think it's good to have a mix. And kind of staying along that same idea of kind of diversifying or having different options, I received a great email from Kirit who said that he owns a OWC Thunder Bay RAID drive. And we talked about that as one of the options. I went to my friend Dave Hamilton from the Mac Geek Gab and said, hey, what what would you recommend for direct attached storage uh, if you're not going with Drobo? And he said, you should look at the OWC Thunder Bay Thunder Bay raids. And I love OWC. Um, they make really great products. And so this is a really great option. And Kirit says, yeah, I have one of those. And, um, you know, the Drobo story just is a good reminder that diversification is also a good strategy when it comes to storage solutions, meaning not locking in on any single vendor particularly for your hardware, because any vendor, any company could go through a rough patch, they could have a rough time. And that's sort of what's happening with Trobo right now. So relying on any one company or any one technology could end up being troublesome if they hit a technological snag or a financial struggle or something like that. And so to that end, he says he also recently bought a G-RAID device and actually loves that too. So I had asked for some recommendations on what kind of RAID products, direct attached storage products people were using. Uh, G-RAID or G Technologies has been around for a while. I think they got bought by SanDisk, which is now also part of Western Digital. So big conglomerate, but that's like a good thing. They're a large player in the storage space. And so it's good odds that a company like Western Digital and products like the G-Raid are going to be around. They're going to be able to weather the storms a little bit better than maybe some smaller companies. That's not to say smaller companies aren't making great products, but again, diversifying and thinking about having different technologies uh, in your sort of arsenal so that you're protected when one might go away or change, you can kind of move things around and shift and and work on the fly. And I think, you know, that's a great point. Another thing that Kirit pointed out was that when you're considering RAID storage, there is kind of two different options when it comes to RAID in terms of how you set the RAID up. There are hardware RAID products and there are, are also software RAID products and they each have their advantages and disadvantages. So for example, the G-RAID products are hardware RAIDs while the OWC Thunder Bay products are software RAIDs. And if you want to know at a real high level sort of what the advantages, disadvantages are with hardware raids, it's exactly that. The raid controllers and everything is in the actual hardware. So Drobo was like that. Synology is like that. And they have separate controllers that actually do the processing and manage the raid independent of your operating system. And so that's good because they can offer better performance, their operating system independent, right? Because they have their own OS and software that sort of runs on the hardware. Uh, replacing disks can be easier because you have features like hot swapping where you can just, if a drive fails, take one drive out and put a new one in relatively easy. The disadvantage is that they tend to cost more. Um, and if your controller fails, if your hardware fails, it's a little bit more difficult because you have to either find a compatible controller to replace that or get a similar product. And this was often a complaint about Drobo is like, if you have a Drobo and you're using their proprietary technology and, and their basically operating system and their, their disk formatting, if your actual Drobo fails, the only thing that you can get is another Drobo to put those drives in. And as a lot of people are finding out now, it's hard to get a Drobo. Drobo's been struggling with uh, the whole supply chain thing. 
And if your uh, Drobo fails, you're kind of stuck. And so that's one of the disadvantages of hardware controllers. Now, Software RAID, on the other hand, leverages software running on your machine with the support of your operating system. So Software RAIDs tend to be lower cost. They allow more flexibility in terms of reconfiguring RAID arrays because you're not locked into a hardware controller. Um, Software RAIDs can be a little bit slower on Performance and performance can be impacted depending upon what's going on on your system and with your operating system under heavy load. Um, and software raids are generally tied to your operating system. So it's harder to be cross-platform and have, a, you know, cross-platform sharing from a single raid. And you do have to shut the raid down, shut down the software if you need to swap out or replace a drive. So not a big deal, but just a little bit of differences. So something to think about if you're in the market and something we didn't talk about on the last episode of the MacCast. I received an email from Alex, who was also a 10-year Drobo veteran. I think I've been using him for about as long. And he was ready to move on from Drobo as well and said, purchased a Synology DS920 Plus recently, but also emailed to remind us that while Drobo is kind of going through a rough patch, they're not fully out of it yet. Uh, Alex actually has a Drobo 5N and said that died after a firmware update. Not really sure why a firmware update killed it, but he's working through troubleshooting with Drobo support and they actually did get back to him and even helped him to try and troubleshoot the issues with his hardware. Now, ultimately, they weren't able to figure it out, but his system, which is actually out of warranty, they even still agreed to replace. And so they are going to replace his unit. He's going to mail it in. So I would just say, if you have a Drobo and uh, you're having issues with it, still reach out to support if you're having trouble uh, because it sounds like they're still going. So there's still hope and they may even offer up some hardware replacements if you're running into trouble. So, uh, you know, even though they're going through that, uh, that restructuring and the bankruptcy, it sounds like they're still around a little bit. Now, that's a little bit of a mixed story. I want to be fair and kind of give both sides of this because I've heard from a lot of people who have struggled getting in contact with Drobo, but maybe based on Alex's experience, that's changing a little bit. Maybe they're refocusing not only on their business, but maybe refocusing on the customer service part of their business, which is really, really critical, especially for a company. I think that's been going through some struggles. So hopefully that's a good sign. And uh, if you do need some help, don't be afraid to reach out to Drobo. And then Corey says is also moving from Drobo to Synology, replacing a 5D with a Synology DS918 NAS drive. Corey says that if you're looking to get a little bit of help, because I mentioned on the last episode of the MacCast, Synology is great, but it tends to be a little bit more on the nerdy side. You start to feel a little bit more like you're doing a little bit of IT with a Synology. It's not terrible, but again, for you know the push button sort of ease of use that the Drobo had, Synology is, I would say, a half step up. You know, it's it's intermediate. So if you're going from beginner, you're moving to intermediate. And uh, Corey says, hey, our friend Don McAllister over at Screencasts Online has a great series, several helpful tutorials on working with Drobo and setting things up and, and that sort of thing. And also that Allison Sheridan over at the Nosilicast podcast had been incredibly helpful to uh, when setting up and, and learning about Synology. So there's a couple of podcasts and things you might want to check out. I'll also throw out a shout out for Dave and John over at the Mac Geek Gab. They are really into this stuff. And if you have questions, I would shoot them over there. They're my go-to person. Dave specifically is my go-to person when it comes to um, raid storage and, and raid arrays and, and that sort of thing. And he's helped me out several times. So a couple issues you can go. But finally, Corey does ask, hey, you know, what about the hardware aging Drobos or Drobos that, you know, I'm replacing. So I have this new Synology. I'm going to have these old Drobos lying around. Can I repurpose them? Is there anything I can do with them? Um, because they do run on proprietary software and, the, you know, it is a hardware raid. Is there anything I can do to repurpose them? outside of just, you know, popping out the drives and reformatting them and kind of salvaging the drives. And unfortunately, as far as I know, Corey, there really isn't anything you can do 
with the Drobo hardware itself. They haven't open sourced the operating system as far as I know, although that's something that I would hope they would do. I don't think anybody's jailbroken or sort of reverse engineered the hardware that I'm aware of, but maybe someone in the community knows about a little underground project or something that uh, will allow you to kind of repurpose or reuse the Drobo hardware because they have some amazing processors and technology inside those things. So it'd be really cool if you could repurpose them. And Corey also asked if we could kind of start to cover a little bit more uh, repurposing of just hardware in general, specifically Apple hardware and tips and tricks for that on future episodes of the MacCast. I know we've talked about different ones in the past. He specifically mentioned, you know, I've got a bunch of old airports and airport expresses lying around. What can I do with those? Uh, Mac minis, older Mac hardware. Uh, you know, I know a great tip for older Mac minis is turn them into media servers. There's all kinds of media software you can get, run Plex on them, set up Plex servers for uh, watching, you know, streaming video and that sort of thing. Those are great for that sort of purpose. I also, as I mentioned, use mine as a quasi, you know, NAS using uh, Chronosync. So there's a lot of ways you can reuse that old hardware. As a matter of fact, my Mac Mini is an original Intel Core Solo or Core Duo. I think it was the first Core Duo machine and it's running Mac OS Snow Leopard. Yeah, it's maxed out at Snow Leopard. Uh, so it still works and runs great. And that thing is like rock solid. So there's a lot of great ways to reuse older hardware. And if you have any tips or tricks related to that, Corey's looking for some advice and I'd love to share those on future episodes of the MacCast. So I'll be thinking about that, Corey, kind of, you know, doing some more segments on repurposing old hardware and reusing that sort of stuff. And again, hopefully somebody knows something we can do with uh, this old Drobo hardware. And if anybody does, it's going to be this community because, you know, the MacCast community you are amazing. So send your tips, tricks, and uh, ideas and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. And I look, for, I look forward to getting those and sharing those on future episodes of the MacCast. Rick wrote in this week to say, hey, I am a Launchpad user. I like using Launchpad. And I ran into a little bit of trouble um, trying to use Apple's built-in image capture app because he noticed that the icon for image capture was not appearing in Launchpad. And he asked, hey, why is that not showing up there? All my other apps show up there. And for those of you who are going, wait, what is Launchpad? <laughs> um you may or may not remember Launchpad. It's still around in, in Mac OS, and it's something you can use. Launchpad was this iOS springboard-style app launcher that was introduced to Mac OS, I think with Mac OS Lion. And, I, you know, personally, I never really used it much. There's actually, if you have or the right kind of Apple keyboard, there's a dedicated Launchpad function key. It's usually mapped to F4. It looks like a series of little, you know, app icons on the key if you have an Apple keyboard. And uh, you can access it that way. It technically is an app. You can find it in your applications, even on uh, Mac OS Monterey. So it's still around. And if you have an Apple keyboard, uh, like I said, there's a de dedicated button. And then um, you can even enable uh, activating Launchpad as a trackpad gesture. So if you have a Mac with a trackpad, you can go into System Preferences, uh, trackpad and then click on the more gestures tab and then you can check the box that says launchpad and then the default gesture is once it's enabled is performing a pinch with three fingers and your thumb so you pinch in and that will activate launchpad and it's really just like the springboard on iOS, you get a grid of applications. Uh, you can swipe or, uh, you know, move your mouse to move between pages of apps. You can click on any icon in the launcher to launch that app. There's also a search box that allows you to filter your apps within the grid to find the app you're looking for. And I guess that's probably the number reason, number one reason why I never really used Launchpad. It always felt like an extra step to me. Uh, beyond just doing using uh, Spotlight as a launcher. I use Spotlight as my app launcher, and I just hit, you know, Command plus Spacebar, and then type the first few characters of the name of the app, and hit Enter, and then that launches the app for me. So I didn't ever see a need to kind of go into the grid view and physically click on an icon. But it, it has a really nice interface, and it's kind of fun. And uh, so Rick's been using it, and, and uh, it does work just like 
the iOS version does. So if you want to rearrange the apps within uh, Launchpad, you can click and hold on an app icon and it'll go into the wiggle mode and then you can drag apps around and rearrange them just like you would on iOS. You can even drag one app onto another app and it will create a, a folder or basically a grouping of those apps and you can give it a name and you can kind of group them together. And it will even have some apps that have the little X icon and clicking on that, just like it would on iOS, will delete the app from your Mac. Now, it does warn you and let you know that it's going to delete the app from your system. So be careful with this one because it is deleting the app. It's not just removing the app from the launch pad. But getting back to Rick's original question, it is the folder feature that solves the mystery for you, Rick, because... Image capture by default is inside a folder inside Launchpad called Other. So you'll find it in there. And if you don't want it in there, you can actually move it out. And it looks to me like most of the apps that are in the Other folder are a lot of the apps that are in the Utilities folder in Applications. Now, I don't think Image Capture by default is in Utilities, um, so I don't know why that one got grouped in there, but uh, that's where it is. You can move it out, so if you go into that folder and uh, just grab that icon, click and drag on it, and pull it outside the folder, you can put it back up into the main Launchpad app grid so that you can find it a little bit easier and maybe have it uh, where you want. Another another way to find it and the way that I found it when I activated Launchpad when I got your question was just to activate Launchpad and use the search box to look for it and then it popped right up as well. So a few ways you can access image capture. It is in there. It's just a little bit more hidden uh, than you were probably expecting and uh, you know that's Launchpad for those of you who maybe forgot that existed or maybe just didn't even know that was a feature on Mac OS. Another thing we talked about, I think on the last episode of the MacCast, was Brett wrote in to talk about his AirPods and unfortunately having a series of trouble where he's having to have them repeatedly replaced under the AirPods Pro warranty replacement program for the whole crackling issue. Well, uh, he heard that on the last episode of MacCast and uh, sent back in another audio comment, this time focusing on something that's really cool with AirPods. And here's what, uh, or AirPods Pro, and here's what Brett had to say. Hi, Adam. Hey, Brett, again, from Coachella Valley. You recently uh, were nice enough to include my voice message to you about the Apple AirPods Pro extended warranty program. And thank you for including that on your show. The information you provided is uh, very helpful as always. But hey, that that was my ranting on the issue. I wanted to tell you one amazing thing about the AirPods Pro that I don't know if you or your listeners have had a chance to experience yet. But um, hey, my my partner goes to bed early. So when I watch Apple TV at night, I'm always using my AirPods Pro. And I discovered uh, by accident that Netflix is incorporating spatial audio, much like Apple Music is, uh, but they're doing it for shows that support it. So if anyone hasn't done this yet, I highly encourage you to watch the last episodes of the current season of Stranger Things using your AirPods Pro. The spatial audio in the show using your Apple AirPods Pro is amazing. I sat there on my couch and I heard uh, sounds coming from all over the living room. Apparently an article was put out that uh, Netflix will soon start supporting spatial audio type functions on non-Apple earbuds as well. Uh, but the, but the um, experience with the Apple AirPods Pro was phenomenal. And I'm anxious for more shows to support spatial audio. Uh, uh, you know, it makes me want to use my AirPods Pro every time I watch a movie or a TV show. So uh, anyway, just want to let you and your listeners know that. And uh, if anyone else has had fun with that, I'd be curious to hear what shows you're watching. Thanks. Have a great day. Hey, Brett. Thanks for uh, sending in that follow-up. And I wholeheartedly agree. Like, spatial audio, Dolby Atmos audio, and specifically the head tracking that is involved with that with AirPods Pro is absolutely amazing. It kind of freaks me out sometimes when I'm watching something and I turn my head and then and the audio actually moves as if I'm in the space and it 
it trips me out a little bit, if I'm being really, really honest, but you're absolutely right. It's amazing. It's very, very immersive. Of course, Apple has a lot of movies and that sort of content in their catalog. Apple TV Plus shows are supporting it. Netflix is supporting it. And we're getting more wide-ranging support for it, which is nice to see. So there's a lot of content out there that you can listen to that will give you that experience. And it's cool that uh, Netflix is supporting that. I just wish... The other technology Netflix needs to support is the Apple TV app, right? So they can be integrated so I can have my Netflix shows integrated because I often forget to go watch things on Netflix because the first place I go to with my Apple TV now is I press the TV button and I've got Hulu, my Hulu shows in there. I've got my Paramount Plus shows in there. I've got my Apple TV Plus shows in there. Every other service is integrated in that TV button except Netflix. So I always forget to go over there, but that's here nor there. I'll also mention if you want that spatial audio experience, but maybe you don't want to pay the premium for Apple's earbuds. I did as a, my pick of the week or uh, thing of the moment, I guess we should say, that's what we call it here on the MacCast. I did as my thing of the moment uh, a while back, the Beats Studio Buds, which have all of the technology of the AirPods Pro, except the H1 chip, right? So the only thing they really can't do is that seamless switching when you move from device to device. But they have everything else, the active noise cancellation, the spatial audio. And the cool thing is, is they sell for just $150 US, $149 US. And you can find them even cheaper. I know on Amazon Prime Day, I think they were down to like 100 bucks. I got a pair through Walmart, a pair of white ones that were $20 cheaper. So they were like $129. Really great deal. They have great sound. They have great audio. A lot of the great features of AirPods Pro, but not with the AirPods price. You can save about 100 bucks or more if you want to get that same experience. So that's another way to get that. And again, Brett, thanks for reminding us that that is a great experience and a great way to use your AirPods Pro. And then finally, for this episode, we have an email from Robert, who is looking for a little bit of help. And I'm going to have to probably turn to the MacCast community because I have a little bit of an idea on how to maybe solve Robert's problem, but I don't think it's perfect. And I bet you there's a perfect solution out there. Someone has a solution for this. Basically, Robert has a couple of Macs. He has an old Mac Mini from 2012 that he's replacing with a new M1 Mac Mini. Uh, Congrats to that. Robert, that is a great system. And also he has an older MacBook Pro that has a music library as well. So basically each one of these machines, the old Mac Mini and the MacBook Pro has an Apple music library on it. And the actual music that's on and in each library is a little bit different. They're they're essentially out of sync. And he's saying, hey, I'm getting this new Mac Mini. I'd like to really consolidate everything into a single music library and bring that over to my new Mac Mini. But I know there's differences between the one on my MacBook Pro and on my old Mac Mini. So I can't just transfer one over because I'm going to be missing some songs potentially from the other. But there's also overlap. So you have the potential for duplicates. So he asks, what's the easiest way to kind of merge those libraries and clean everything up is, you know, is there some way to put those two libraries together? Uh, you could just try combining the two music folders, which was the thing I was thinking about, but there's good odds that some tracks or albums might get overwritten or not properly merged. So you can like literally, you know, take all the contents of one music folder and drop it on the other one and then say, Hey, go ahead and, you know, replace any duplicates. Or there's also the merge function uh, that you might be able to use. Uh, But again, depending upon dates and times and things like that, that may not merge properly. And then there's also the metadata. I'm assuming, you know, your music library on the Mac mini and your music library on the MacBook pro might have different metadata with the files. And if you're just copying files over it, that's not going to get moved together either. So, you know, I would say you could kind of deduplicate or get the same music together. You might be able to use a tool like Gemini from MacPod, Gemini 2. Uh, I know that has a great feature for kind of deduplicating music libraries. So you could kind of, you know, create a copy of it, throw all the music in one big folder, and then have Gemini go through that and find all the duplicates. And you could try to manually clean that up. But that seems like a little bit of a, a process. I know back in the day, back in the iTunes days, we had a bunch of great apps 
that would deduplicate your you know your mp3s and your music libraries i remember an app i think it was called tune ranger that was incredible for merging and cleaning up your libraries but i don't think those ex- apps exist anymore they're still out there but they they were really focused on itunes and i don't know if there's something specifically focused on apple music but again I'm not aware of everything that's out there. I'm sure someone has a solution for this. So I am throwing it out to you in the MacCast community, putting out the MacCast bat signal. I guess we need it. We need like a a MacCast symbol that we could throw up in the sky when, when our community members need help. I don't know what that would look like. Maybe, uh, you know, the MacCast logo or it can't be an Apple logo because that's that's too cliche and we'd probably get sued for that. So if you can come up with a good uh, MacCast community bat signal, uh, Mac signal, that would be great. MacCast signal, uh, that would be really cool. <laughs> let us know what that is. But more importantly, let's help Robert out. How can we dedupe, clean up, and merge a an Apple Music library and get all the music from two separate libraries onto a single library and hopefully maintain and bring over all the metadata and merge all the metadata and all that sort of stuff. Is there a way to do it? Is there a fancy tool out there that you know about that uh, maybe I don't know about? If you have that, shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Thanks for hanging out with me for another one. Before I leave you, I'd like to thank my supporters, Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. You can find them at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, if you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-I-AM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you can find those on the website. That's at MacCast. Dot com And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But with that, that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.